Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Sunil Badami talks with Annika Smethurst about her new book, On Secrets, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hi, I'm Sunil Badami and welcome to the Byron Bay Writers Festival Conversations from Byron podcast series. And although we're not in Byron, I'd like to acknowledge the Araqual Bumbaban people of the Byron Shire as the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather. I pay respect to the elders, past and present, and ask that you share with us respect for country. Hey, can you keep a secret? From patient doctor confidentiality to our own personal diaries, we keep secrets for others and to ourselves. And in an age where it seems we can get information from anywhere, anytime, at the touch of a finger, and so can big internet companies like Facebook and Google who mine our data for commercial purposes. And increasingly, thanks to more and more national security laws, such as data retention and metadata surveillance, so can the government. So the idea that some information is still secret seems incredible. So what happens when you share a big secret that could land you in prison? That's what happened to Annika Smethurst, national political editor for the Herald Sun, news.com.au, the Daily Telegraph and the Courier Mail, and co-host of the Briefing podcast, when she disclosed a secret that could have affected millions of Australians in 2018. Her home was raided by the Australian Federal Police and she was charged under a century-old secrecy law and then faced a year in legal limbo where it looked like she might be imprisoned for writing a story about what the government didn't want made public. This increasing secrecy is an issue that's of concern to many academics, public figures, members of the public and especially journalists whose stock in trade is information and publishing the things the powers that be would prefer we didn't know. And this creeping secrecy and opacity in public life, and let's face it, our growing distrust of institutions like the media and government, are discussed by Annika in her powerful and gripping account of what happened to her and the wider issues of press freedom and public accountability on secrets published by Hashed Australia. Welcome, Annika. Good to be with you in this COVID kind of life. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you become a journalist? Uh, there's always an assumption that journalists need to be excellent at writing. And it's not to say I didn't enjoy um, uh, humanities subjects at school, but I guess the reason I always wanted to become a journalist and I think what sustained me was a, a curiosity um, 
and a nosiness which um, has existed from a very young age often you know a lot of children little kids like to ask a lot of questions but I guess it's something that stayed with me for a while um, whether it be uh, gossip around the schoolyard or, or you know gossip within my own family I've always enjoyed knowing um, things first and I think that's something that as a journalist you need you need to be inquisitive and need to want to get that information and I think that's possibly something that led me down this path so um, from a very early age I decided that's what I wanted to do and managed to pick up a few shifts at um, my local newspaper the Bendigo Advertiser originally when I was a teenager and went on to study it at university because I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And how did you go from the Bendigo Advertiser to, I guess, what many people would consider journalism's big game, the Press Gallery in Canberra? Yeah, I, uh, as I said, I, I got a job when I was about 16 doing occasional articles for the Bendigo Advertiser and then I went to university and I was one of those university students that took any opportunity to do work, even if it was free, which is very controversial now to do unpaid internships and I don't necessarily agree with them, but um, I put my hands up for a lot of those and there was a an acceptance into the um the traineeship or cadetship through the Herald Sun and that ultimately set me on a path to uh, politics within six months of finishing my cadetship I was um, given the opportunity to go to to report at Spring Street in Victoria and state politics and I've never looked back I've now covered politics for almost a decade now and um, I can't really imagine reporting on much else what's it like being in the corridors of power you know yeah it's um sometimes now I must admit it takes for somebody to come and visit me for to a reminder that working at Parliament's quite a, a spectacular place to work because uh, like everybody else it just becomes work and you know the same sort of office politics that goes on in any office I guess uh, but I do pinch myself occasionally I guess that journalism is often called the first draft of history and in my relatively short political reporting career I've seen spills I've seen prime ministerial changes I've been on election campaigns I've uh, been in the White House um, I've been in the Oval Office with Trump and I've seen some pretty incredible things that really will be historic moments in history and I'm incredibly privileged to have witnessed those um, having said that you know work is still work often there's a lot of mundane times where you know it's not as exciting as perhaps it's perceived to be in the rest of the country and you're scratching around for stories and pollies won't return your calls so there is a glamour side and it's incredible you know that you can someone who you know grew up in regional Victoria and is in their early 30s can ask a a question of the Prime Minister of Australia and he answers and that's a a privileged position to be in but um, it's not always like that there's (laughs) there's a lot of sitting through you know Senate estimate hearings and reading reports and uh, a lot of grunt work too. I mean being there at the first draft of history so to speak means you must know a lot of secrets so how do you decide which secrets to keep and which ones to share? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because often, um, especially press gallery reporters, get criticised for being in the bubble and uh, perhaps sometimes keeping the secrets of politicians. And I definitely take the view that I don't believe everything I hear should be reported, not because I'm trying to keep some amazing thing from the, the Australian people. I just think that Uh, Firstly, politicians and other people I talk to, anybody working up here, are entitled to a personal life and privacy. Um, I think 
those lines can be crossed and, and they are when a story becomes in the public interest. And the notable example of this is always the Barnaby Joyce scandal. Uh, was that in the public interest? Well, the public were interested. That doesn't mean it was in the public interest, but I guess when it became an issue of um, a staff member or um, allegations of perhaps travel being used, you know, um, to con- you know, as they were in a relationship, I guess that's when those lines get blurred. I tend to err on the side of not publishing those things, and a bit of that could be self-interest because I think it's important to form relationships and trusts with politicians so that when there is a story in policy, which is what we're effectively here for, um, they trust you to tell that story well. And I think if you go for the small fish and the small target and not the bigger picture, um, often you won't be trusted. So what was the secret you were investigated for by the AFP for over a year or nearly a year for revealing? So back in 2018, um, in April of 2018, I wrote a story about national security. And um, one thing about Australia's national security laws and um, environment really is it's not very well known um, outside of Canberra, even within Canberra circles. It definitely operates in the shadows. Well, we we have the case of Witness J, the um, former intelligence officer whose trial was conducted without the knowledge of the ACT Justice Minister. Absolutely. And it is um, for many years, uh, I guess, these bodies have operated in the shadows and um, they've been allowed to. And I do understand the reason for that in some situations, you know, um, it's important that our national security bodies keep us safe. We've been very fortunate in Australia not to have a massive terror attack and um, much of that is to do with the hard work they do. And I I don't sort of subscribe to this idea that we should know everything. I I do respect that some things are in the national interest and some things aren't, but it's about getting the balance right. And they've asked for us to give up a lot of um, freedoms, I guess we've enjoyed as Australians and uh, in for the greater good, or that's how it's been sold to us. You know, since September 11, Australia has introduced more than 60 national security laws or amendments. That's more than any other Western democracy. Uh, And if we're willing to accept them, I think we really need to shine a light on that area and be allowed to. Um, I found out about a major change to one of those agencies. We have about six uh, sort of spy agencies, I guess, if you want to characterise them in that way. Um, one of them is the ASD, uh, that is the Australian Signals Directorate, and they're really our cyber spies. Um, three of the six spy agencies are meant to look at domestic threats. They can look at us. That's the AFP, that's ASIO. They can spy on us. Three of them are meant to look at foreign threats, and one of those is the AST. In fact, their motto is to protect us against foreign threats. Now, there was a proposal to change this, to use their powers, and they're extremely powerful in what they can do, to covertly surveil Australians. Now, we're not saying they would do that to good law-abiding Australians, but they would have the power to. They were, you know, their argument was they would be going after pedophiles and, and, and other sort of bad people. But I guess the argument was for a lot of people in the national security circle that we already have people that can look into these people, whether that's the AF, AS, AFP or ASIO. Why do we need this extremely powerful body that's meant to protect us from foreign threats to turn their powers on Australians. And I found out about that and wrote that. And I, I don't think in writing it I put Australia in Australians at any threat, but um, it seems the government may have disagreed on that. You wrote the story, April 2018, and then on fourth of the 4th of June 2019, what happened? 
And how did you feel when it did? Yeah, so after I'd published the story in April of 2018, uh, Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister at the time and uh, Labor actually wrote to Malcolm Turnbull and suggested I be investigated for this because it was a major leak and, and it was an embarrassment to the government and separately there'd been some complaints within security circles in Canberra and they'd said, oh, the AFP will investigate. Now, this isn't necessarily unusual. Sometimes this happens, but usually it goes away and I'd say that in a, a similar vein to um, there was a few members of our cabinet that inadvertently, I'm told, or they were hacked and liked uh, porno- pornographic tweets and the AFP were poured in to investigate and that just dropped off. No one ever found out what happened to that. So, Well, we're still waiting for the AFP to investigate what happened with the documents from Sydney Town Hall. <laughs> Exactly. And there's many cases of this during the election. There was a a candidate down in Tasmania and she was accused of putting up some racist stuff on Facebook and they sent the AFP to investigate. I don't know whatever happened to that. So, look, I I can't say I was thrilled when they brought the AFP in, but I I did not expect that more than a year later they'd rock up and raid my house. So, as you say, on on June 4, 2019, I was at home uh, early one morning and I got a knock at the door. I thought it was going to be a carpet cleaner, so I didn't actually check the peephole and it was five members of the AFP. They were armed. Uh, They were relatively polite, but they were still armed and had a warrant and um, they uh, raided my home for the seven hours later and they actually had two extra police join them. So in total, there were seven police there for about seven hours in my Canberra apartment. And what did they do when they were going through the apartment? Uh, I Look, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to criticise them as people. You know, they're doing their job just as I was doing mine. I don't believe any of them. I'm not, I don't know them personally, but I don't believe any of them signed up to the federal police in order to raid young journalists' homes. I think, um, you know, they probably wanted to go after the bad guys and I maintain I'm not one of those. So uh, there was a little, a few of them definitely felt uncomfortable. I think that's how I would have toned it. Not all of them did. Um, some of them were quite uh, pushy and tried to question me a little bit during the day, which wasn't necessarily enjoyable and I didn't say too much at all. Um it was more the gravity, I guess, and the um, the thoroughness that that surprised me. Uh, I thought perhaps they might come over and have a quick squeeze through my computer and perhaps look in a study or something. Uh, but seven hours implies they 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 went through everything and they they did. They asked to go through my bin, um, which you know it was more than a year after I'd written the story. So God knows what they were looking through it for in my kitchen bin, um, my grill, my freezer page by page of every cookbook I own, my sewing basket, my Christmas decorations, my, as was publicised, my underwear drawer. Um, You know, there wasn't a skerrick of that house they didn't look through. And at the time, I guess I'd never had any experience with this and I thought perhaps this is what happens. But in hindsight, I sort of question how much of that was about intimidation because realistically they went through pages and pages of notes and things I'd kept looking for phone numbers and they didn't take anything. So, you know, surely they would have removed those from my property if they were really alarmed about some of the things I'd taken, even if they were indecipherable, as many people's handwriting is, or they would have taken address books and things like this. And they didn't. Um, They did take some electronic data from my house, but I guess just the you know, the search on my property was so intimidating. And and then they didn't search other places, you know, they didn't search my outdoor area or my barbecue or uh, my storage shed. So it was a strange sort of targeting. Um, It was incredibly intimidating. I live alone. I was, you know, in a rented apartment that was media on my front lawn. And um, I was stuck inside with seven armed police as they went through everything I own and pulled it all out and read it and had a look at it. 
How did that experience affect you personally? Um, I usually don't get too, try not to get too personally involved in stories. Uh, I can't say that I was, you know, too in, in such a great state for the past 18 months, obviously. Um, I've had some good news recently, but for the first 12 months after that, it, um, it, it hit me really hard. I, I had always been a newspaper journalist and while I do a little bit of television and, and radio, I enjoyed the anonymity of a byline and that was taken away from me. I was recognized in a lot of space, a lot of spots, uh, at the pub, at the post office. I went on a holiday to Vietnam. I was recognized there by some Australians. And whilst most people had good wishes, it, it was such an exposure that I really wasn't used to or prepared for. Um, I would turn on the radio in the car and people would be discussing whether Annika Smith should go to jail. And um, I know that I am in the media and often a voice that discusses, discusses what goes on, but I guess this has given me an insight to what it's like to be on the other side and to be hearing that when it's your life. I inadvertently became a poster girl for uh, press freedom and I guess it was something I wasn't ready for. And eventually, I think after a few months, I realised, well, this is happening. You can't try and hide it, so at least own it. And probably about four months after it happened, my my mind shifted and I, I sort of came to the realisation that um, but I'd been put in this position and I could speak up and put a sort of a face to the idea of press freedom because I think people sort of support press freedom in the same way they support world peace or, you know, um, human rights. You go, yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm in favour of democracy and these sort of concepts, but it's not until it's challenged that you actually understand how important it is. And even as a journalist, I would put myself in that category. But why do you think trust in the press has fallen so much lately, not just by politicians who kind of see you as adversaries, but by the general public as well? Yeah, I think a lot of things play into this. I don't think it's one sort of answer. Um, I think uh, Trump is the best example, but he's far from the only one that really pits journalists against the public. You know, instead of putting us in a position of where we should be, which is as the fourth estate to make sure that the government's kept honest. He and other leaders seem to pitch us as the enemy of the people. And if there's a story they don't like, it's often described as fake news. And the problem is you could have a story that's 99% right and maybe 1% or 2% is a bit, you know, people don't agree with. Uh, in politics, there's always shades of grey. And if you have one sort of element that's not right, then it's it's perceived as fake news and it, the whole article is discredited. And then therefore your whole industry or your whole newspaper or your whole television station can be discredited. So I think there's a few things working against journalists at the moment. I'm not That's not to say we get it right all the time. Um, but I, I really fear that um, the sort of anger and respect people have for the press is really something that's incredibly dangerous. How has the experience of the raid and the subsequent legal fight, which we'll cover in a second, how has that affected you professionally? I mean, how do you feel about sharing secrets now? Yeah, I often wonder, um, my parents would probably hate me saying this, would I write the story again? They'd say, no, of course you wouldn't. You know, think of what you put everybody through. As a journo, if a good story comes across your desk, you're going to write it. You know, uh, I don't know too many journalists that wouldn't. Uh, have I been risk averse in the last year? I think, yes, definitely. Um, and I think that is exactly what these sort of raids produce. And that's, I'd like to say that I wasn't and I was as bullshit as ever. And I did continue to work, but I do think that this, 
the sort of raid that happened to me and the ABC, um, it it can't not have consequences. And even if that's not on journalists, if it's on whistleblowers and it stops people standing up and and speaking and, and, and calling out wrongs when they walk past them, then that's what the government or authorities want. And that's a detrimental effect. It's very hard to measure, you know, how many whistleblowers were going to come forward that didn't because of what happened to me. We'll never know. But I do think that it it definitely made me, I guess, question a lot of the things I do. And I wondered at times, why wasn't I attracted to, um, you know, writing for the social pages or why don't I write for Home Beautiful or Vogue or something like that? And I thought, why do I enjoy writing this sort of journalism that can get me in so much strife? Um, I'm still not really sure what the answer to that is, but I do... I do worry about the chilling effect it actually has had on the profession as a whole. I mean, you, we talk about one of the most popular, you know, political shows that you recently appeared on, on the ABC, being Insiders. And we know that, you know, you, it's it, like any workplace, you're bound to make friends or um, interact with people at Parliament House. How has the raid and the aftermath affected your relationship with, say, politicians who may have ordered those raids, like the Home Affairs Minister or the Attorney General or the Prime Minister? Uh, I don't receive... I've, I have noticed I've been taken off the um, the distribution list for press releases from the Home Affairs Minister. I can't imagine why. I get the rest of them. I get the Greens, I get Labors, I get most of the Liberal parties. So, look, I can't say why that is, but... um. Yeah, I wouldn't have said, I tried never to personally attack Peter Dutton or Christian Porter um, when this happened to me. And for the most part, they didn't say anything derogatory against me personally. Um, Parliament's an interesting place when you work there. You know, you've got, there's only two places to get lunch. You can write something nasty about someone and then you've got to queue up for lunch and you might have uh, Sarah Hanson-Young behind you and Pauline Hanson in front of you. And, and there is a general consensus that it swords down in those sort of areas. You know, they understand our job and they can yell at each other in the chamber and then they can step out. And there is sort of a gentleman's agreement that we've all got to get on with our lives and we can't, you know, t- take these things too personally. But in terms of how it affected me, there were politicians that were more afraid to talk to me, uh, whether they thought my phone was bugged or they were worried about being sort of fingered as a leaker to me because all the eyes were on me. So it it did hurt my um, ability to do my job in that sense. I also became someone that was talked about in Parliament House as opposed to me talking about other people. Um well, I also privately received a lot of support from um, MPs, especially a lot of government, senior government MPs that were pretty horrified this has happened. You know, within the coalition, there are still a lot of people that really value uh, free speech and, and freedom of the press. And um, it became a situation where because the uh, AFP had decided to do this, the government, even if they disagreed, actually couldn't do too much to intervene because they would have been seen as, you know, perverting the courts of justice. So, um, from both sides, I received um, immense support, but it really didn't mean too much to me. It was uh, nice and window dressing, but until I was let off, it will, you know, saying I'm really sorry for what's happened to you in the halls of parliament meant very little. So going back to the legal fight to against the charges by the AFP, what were the specific charges and how did you beat them in court? Look, uh, 
the specific charges are interesting because it, it goes to how we beat them. Um, we challenged the warrant because they weren't specific enough on the warrant about what I had exactly done. So we're not actually sure what they thought I did. But I think speaking generally, uh, there was a few issues. Uh, one of them was the Crimes Act, which dates back to um, 100 years ago. And it basically was a World War One section that was put into, you know, counter espionage in the First World War. Uh, that basically says that uh, anybody who works for the government uh, can't hand over information and if I get that information that therefore I am breaking a law. Now if you take this uh, literally that would mean that if I sent you a, uh, a document, a government document that wasn't allowed out, that just by opening it or just by having it in your inbox, you've broken a law. So, As opposed to Malcolm Turnbull's memoir. Book, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, look, if you, I, I, I was on Q&A recently and I said this and I was shut down by a member of the National Security Department, but if you do take this literally, and, and this is how lawyers do interpret things, that if ASIO, someone at ASIO told me how many paper clips and blue pens they had, that therefore they'd be breaking the law. Now, there's a little bit of common sense taken into most of these things usually, and as we know, the whole principle of how journalism works is getting leaks from government departments. And if we went and chased all of them up, um, our police forces would be very busy uh, and we'd all spend a lot of time in court. So um, that was sort of one issue they had with it, um, I guess, being the main one. There was also a, a sort of an allegation around um, a national security law that perhaps I put people in danger or, you know, Australia's sovereignty in danger because I, I published something that they thought was risky. Now, I understand the need for these provisions. You know, I would never publish a story that said, this is where Australian Army, you know, SAS soldiers are based overseas and um, here you go and hand it over to sort of the baddies out there. So uh, I can see the need for those laws. But um, what I reported on, it was a change, a proposed change to um, the Australian Signals Director. Now, should they want to have gone ahead and done that, and there is talk that they will push ahead with that still, it'll have to pass parliament. So it's hardly going to be a secret because it will be debated in open parliament. So um, I guess I was just fast tracking that for the government and telling them a little bit ahead of time to when they were prepared to tell the Australian public about it. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, given that one of the criticisms in Turnbull's memoir was that he and his erstwhile ally, Matthias Cormann, felt that the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, would run policy through the media before it went through Parliament or to the Cabinet Room. I mean, so you got off on the warrant um, and the case was won on the 15th of April. Why did it take so long for the charges to be dropped on the 27th of May this year? Yeah, well, I had a High Court win and I was congratulated and people sent me champagne, but it didn't change anything for me. In fact, I was quite upset about it because we won on a technicality. Basically, the warrant was sloppy. Uh, the police didn't fill it out correctly and the magistrate signed it and it was seen to be a sloppy warrant. So we won. Now, when we won, um, the information they took from my house, which was a number of text messages, and when I say number, I think it was close to 200, uh, and a few notes in my phone, they were, um, the police were allowed to keep those. So the warrant they used to raid my home was found to be against the law, illegal. Uh, therefore, it was trespass for them to come on my property. But look, I'm no legal mind, but the way it was explained to me was if they had have come in and taken my couch, they would have had to return the couch because they have to rectify you know, the situation they left it in. 
um, they made copies of what they took from my house. So I didn't lose, I guess, the phone or the text messages or the note. I still had them uh, and they took copies of them. I still find it astonishing that we can have a high court win saying the warrant was illegal and yet I don't get to return my things. But up until that point, um, the police weren't actually allowed to use, look at that evidence to decide whether to prosecute me. Uh, so after the High Court win in April, that was released to them and then they could look and see if they had any nuggets that they thought they could hang a prosecution off on me. So I guess the delay, that sort of eight-week delay, was them deciding after looking at what they'd taken to see whether there was any evidence um, that they'd taken. <laughs> How did you feel when the charges were finally dropped? Um, I'm a journalist and I cannot explain it. Um I knew it had been weighing heavily on my shoulders. I knew I'd been a pain to live with. I knew I was anxious. Um, work, my workplace advised me, you know, to talk to a counsellor and were very sort of good in their uh, duty of care around that. Um, but it didn't seem to help in the way I thought it would. I Like until I was told you're not going to jail, no amount of talking about it or, um, you know, support did anything really it was something I just had to live with and I I wasn't sleeping um you know people would tell me there you're not going to go to jail if you go to jail we're going to stop parliament we'll protest in the streets blah 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 which is all very nice but when it's a reality that you wake up with every day um you start to believe it and in some ways it's a safe space to imagine it happening because then when it does happen um, if it does happen, you don't have that terrible shock. And I, so I'd almost mentally prepared myself for the worst case scenario. And um, when I found out that not only were they ruling out prosecuting me, uh, they were also going to delete all the material they had and also not go after any whistleblowers or any of my sources, I think that was almost the greatest gift because if they had have said they're not going to prosecute me but they had have gone after people I speak with, which I would have been deeply alarmed because I would have been just so horrified that I could have potentially destroyed other people's lives too. How do you feel whenever you pass an AFP officer or you're stopped for an RBT now? Uh, I was pretty anxious to start with. Um, I didn't open the door for a few months uh, whenever it rang. Um, I moved straight away. I didn't spend another night in that house. Uh, but even when I moved, I'd hear the buzzer and I'd be like, no, nah, not answering that. It was just a delivery guy. So I was pretty, um, pretty cut up about it. I also, I'd always grown up to trust the police. I'd never, and I know there's a lot of good police out there that do incredible work, but I had never challenged them and never thought ill of them. And I did for a while driving around, I sort of got anxious if they were coming down my street for whatever reason. You see a lot of AFP in Canberra, they're everywhere for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of people that need protecting. There's a lot of embassies, all that sort of stuff. But I I did become very sort of acutely aware of how scared I was of them. And I must admit, I did lose a bank card recently and the AFP came around and took a police report and were lovely. So, you know, no hard feelings to them long-term, but um it was it was pretty hard and also Canberra's a small place and even recently I was in the, in Civic in the centre of town and I, I ran into one of the officers that had been part of the raid on my house and I think we sort of both recognised each other and gave each other a bit of a, oh, it's you. Um, and it, it's awkward and, you know, 
an unfortunate thing about living in Canberra. You run into a whole range of people all the goddamn time, uh, which can be handy if you're trying to get stories, but it's also hard to, uh, I guess, escape and have an outside life outside of Parliament House. What role has the 24-hour news cycle and opinion as news played into, you know, politicians' reluctance to kind of answer questions? The reluctance to answer questions is really interesting because they talk about the 24-hour news cycle really coming in in that Rudd Gillard era. And um, Gillard's a good example and she's showing it now. Um, Out of politics, she's engaging, uh, funny, um, and most people from both sides of politics will tell you this, that she's, uh, you know, an enjoyable person to have a coffee with. And yet you look back to her time as Prime Minister and she was so, I guess, um, hesitant to say anything wrong and and as a lot of politicians are let me just say that's not a new thing but I think when you're it's a 24-hour news cycle it becomes about winning each day so one tiny little mistake one misstep um, you don't sort of get the big bold question times that you got from Keating who wouldn't have cared less if he said something wrong or you know that they sort of um were a lot stronger in their stance it's something that Howard enjoyed too he could say something and it have more of a long-term impact than uh, sort of did John Howard win the day. And once we became into that cycle and constant interviews, and I think it did become more like a sport and we start to treat it as a sport as journalists. And I'm not saying we're not at fault here. You know, a lot of people, we have to fill pages every day. We have to fill airtime. Uh, and because of that, you do get this sort of which team are you on, who landed a punch every day, as opposed to greater sort of thoughts about policy and direction and what people stand for. And I think we used to understand what politicians stand for a little bit more. And I still maintain that the ones that do have something to stand for have more respect from the public. Even if you don't agree with them, you could be staunchly against, you know, Barnaby Joyce, or you could be staunchly against Richard Di Natale. But if you respect them for wearing their heart on the sleeve, showing you what they stand for and standing up for you know, the people they believe to be their base, even if you aren't their base. I think when you are so pleased, so scared to take a stance and you're so keen to just go down the middle, um, politics just becomes this sort of, uh, you know, terrible sort of who's going to win, who's going to muck up, who's, you know, avoiding mistakes so you don't end up on the nightly news. Uh, and I think that's, I don't know how to fix it. And I know the media has a big role to play in that, but I, I do see it as a, a real problem at the moment. So just to finish up, tell me, what advice would you give a young journalist, maybe in Bendigo or thinking about getting into reporting, possibly even political reporting? What advice would you give to that young journalist starting out today? Look, I would say do it. And I think that's something that I didn't have. I remember in my first sort of lectures at Monash University, I had a number of some great lecturers, but I also had a number of lecturers that were sort of saying, why are you doing this? Newspapers are dead. Um, There's not a lot of career in that. And it's something I still hear. And it drives me insane because we actually need journalists more than ever. And they might not take the traditional sort of daily newspaper, which I've been incredibly lucky to work for, Um, they might, you know, there's a lot more online things, whether it be Huffington Post or BuzzFeed, both bad examples because they've actually shut down their Australian operations, but startups where, you know, there is still room out there for different sort of new media podcasts are obviously taking off incredibly. So just because you don't sort of, um, 
do it in the way that it's been done for generations. It doesn't mean there isn't a role for the media. In fact, there's an increasing role of pe- for people to ask questions, do investigations and get answers. Um, so I would tell people to do it. I'd also tell them to listen in uh, media law classes if they go to university, as perhaps I should have probably listened a little bit closer. Um, and I'd just say keep a broad mind. I noticed so many people coming through with that, idea that they are on the left or they're on the right or they're advocates for either side. And um, I would say that in my sort of reporting, I have, it's opened my eyes, if anything, you know, if I went in with a certain idea 10 years ago, when I started reporting, if anything, I've sort of challenged myself a number of times. And I think that's what you should do as a journalist. You know, I'm not saying every journalist should be a swinging voter, because, you know, if you want to, you can, support one side and still be a fair and balanced reporter and take that into your work. But I think the best way and the way you're going to get the most out of it is to actually, you know, ring up those people you might not agree with and interview them as opposed to just sort of stay within your group. And 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 that goes to trying to understand the people that you don't associate with and understanding their motives for voting a certain way or their motives for having passions about those sort of policy areas. I think it's really amazing that we're talking today on the day that you know, the uh, the dismissal papers have been released and mm. a day before Donald Trump's niece releases her book of their family secrets. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Annika. It's been really enjoyable talking to you too. <laughs> On Secrets is published by Hachette Australia and you can get it from your local bookshop or else from the Byron Writers Festival official bookseller, The Book Room at Byron, which you can find at thebookroomatbyron.com. I'm Sunil Badami and it's been a pleasure sharing this secret with you. Don't forget to check out all the other wonderful online events at byronwritersfestival.com and sign up for news, events and regular postcards from Byron featuring stories, recipes and more from some of our best writers. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.